Uh, this is Martin Scorsese and... Uh... Ooh, mommy. This shot was problematic. <laughs> yeah, boy, we're in trouble now. And that's the way it came out. It was really nice. On this day, I remember it was a breaking point with me. Of course it's not true. Wait, so yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> it was one of the great all-time people. <laughs> we broke them all day tonight. Especially clenched. <laughs> You know, occasionally, you get lucky. A little device that was in my nose, I put on uh, the, the chocolate, gave it to the rat, and the rat is now running around with that device. Time flies when I'm with you guys. Ah. I hope that everyone enjoys listening to people talking about something that they shouldn't be talking about. Yeah. Hello, hello, and welcome to Director's Commentary. I am Eugene Kotliarenko, the host of the show. And what we're going to try to do here is um, capture the energy that I felt when uh, I watched director's commentaries, when I was first getting into films. Um, capture the enthusiasm, the, the spirit of it, the insights, the fun, the interplay between people who are knowledgeable about film and passionate about film and make films. Um, this is not going to be a show where we, uh, you know, watch fucking movies and talk over them or, you know, provide whatever scholarly context or, you know, make fun of them, mystery science theater style or something like that. Um, although who knows? We may have some special episodes or reduce some <laughs> actual director's commentaries, but by and large, the intention of the show, like I said, is to capture the spirit of that very special enthusiasm that um, I still have for film and that I, I grew up observing others having for film and that, uh, generally speaking, I feel is kind of missing in the culture um, you know, there's a lot of like uh, negative Nancy prognosticators about the future of movies and a lot of very like kind of scholarly approaches to movies, not even scholarly, just kind of like theory based, you know, and then just a lot of like, you know, uh, hot takes and negativity and shit talking and all stuff that I think is kind of antithetical to um, the best in the spirit of cinema, which is generative and constructive and exciting so so yeah so this this will be a show where um there'll be a few things on the table i want to almost have it be like a diary uh, of my uh film life and, and by and large i dedicate my life to uh this art and to this medium which i think is one of the greatest things under the sun and so every week i'm finding myself you know watching tons of films working on tons of films, uh, trying to get new movies off the ground um, or dealing with, you know, some sort of um, screening of a older film of mine or dealing with distribution stuff or reading books about films or reflecting on, you know, films that are basically in the public discourse um, and, and or having just thoughts about, um, you know, the, the, the nature of writing or how I can, kind of extend and, and extrapolate my own language um, as it comes to film um, or reacting to things I see in the landscape um, that are, I think are wrongheaded or maybe inspiring or maybe in their wrongheadedness inspire me. Besides that sort of like weekly reflection on things I've watched, things I'm reading, things I see in the ether, 
Um, I do also want to have uh, conversations with directors and with film specialists. And so we will be doing that on a weekly basis, uh, film enthusiasts, um, and not necessarily people who are out to promote anything, but I think I'm going to try to get people who are at interesting junctures in their um, film journey. <laughs> and then also, I think I will be um, starting a Patreon and stuff um, where I will be um, partly using that to engage with um, patrons of this uh, podcast. Um, and so I think there will be a secondary episode for patrons only uh, every week where I, um, maybe through like a raffle process or something, um, I'll be able to talk with um, a patron for 30 minutes or 45 minutes about whatever they want related to film, whether it's they're working on something and they want feedback or they really have a hot take on a movie that they want to discuss with me or if they want to you know, ask me questions about my work or my process, I'm happy to do that. And then there's also a visual element to uh, this show. I will be recording all of them um, and that will be available to patrons as well if they want to, you want to watch and not listen. So if you watch, you know, you can see this awesome pimple I have on the bridge of my nose, um, which you'll, you would never be able to experience just listening to orally. Um, yeah, and speaking of listening to it orally, I think before I go any further, I want to kind of address the medium that this is under, uh, which I guess is called podcast medium, which, you know, is basically an extension of a type of radio program. And I did have um, a radio program at a pirate radio station in Los Angeles called K-Chung from like 2011 about till the pandemic hit in 2020, till the lockdown and stuff. And the first few years, it was a music show that I, I had a co-host, Brent, who played music and talked a bit. And then for the last five years, it was interviews, interviews I did with people um, that I found interesting, um, which was called Open Up and Bleed, that show was. And, um, the, you know, that 10 year period kind of also coincides with the rise of podcasts. And I always kind of resisted the idea because we could have easily converted the show and been like, okay, it's a podcast too. But I was kind of resisted that idea because I think from the very beginning, podcast felt like a punchline to a joke for me, you know? And at a certain point when it was like ascendant in the mid-teens, it just felt like a kind of attempt at relevance for a lot of people. So again, it's just like a punchline for a joke that I didn't want to participate in. And then kind of in the late teens, it became this conduit for like a cash grab through Patreon, which again, I felt weird about participating in, but I guess now I don't feel weird anymore. So I'm going to be, you know, like vying for relevance and um, attempting a cash grab with this. Um, but not for those reasons, really just because I felt like I had said earlier, um, I would, I just didn't, don't see the type of energy I want to see towards film in the world. So I'm gonna just try to put that out there where I wanna take it seriously, um, but not negatively. And I wanna think about it deeply, but not in a pretentious way. And I want to um, spread my enthusiasm, um, but not in some hokey or cringe or um, inauthentic or strategic way. I just, I just love movies and I want other people to love them. And I want other people to understand the responsibility that we as filmmakers have towards audiences and stuff. And, and before we move on to the movie talk, I will just say one more thing kind of about podcasts. I do think 
just like I had to dig around in my skull for a second. Like un, uh, the real kind of distaste I have for it is like this kind of comical etymological uh, leftover from like, you know, when they came up with this concept of podcast, it derived from the idea that they had a device called the fucking iPod, <laughs> Apple's, you know, digital music player, the iPod. And so you could play songs on there, but you could also listen to radio style programming on there. And they called that a podcast. So this name, which is now, you know, basically in the popular consciousness, fully divorced from the iPod, to me, always just felt like shilling for Apple. And that felt really like lame and like something I didn't really want to do. Like, oh, why would I call my fucking radio show a podcast that just is this weird way of letting Apple just, you know, colonize everyone's consciousness even further. But again, I'm doing it. But I, I do think it's like interesting and important to kind of like point that out that um, podcast is such a stupid, funny kind of vestigial term that um, is left over from a moment um, where it originated as like a marketing ploy for Apple iPods. Um, okay, cool. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, um, we can kind of get to the matter at hand, which is talking about a film. Um, and I do want to get one other thing kind of on, on the table, which is that there is a, um, you know, invasion going on right now in the country where I was born, uh, Ukraine, or more technically, I guess I was born in the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, um, which, you know, post-Soviet collapse has become Ukraine, and that country is being invaded right now by Russia, its uh, ethnic neighbor, geographically, uh, its geographical neighbor, and also its uh, kind of ethnically shared neighbor, in that there are many uh, ethnically Russian Ukrainians, and so it's, it's almost like a kind of invasion that's manufactured by the Russians to look like a, a civil war. And I say manufactured because, um, you know, I've been gravely concerned for the people that I know there in the Ukraine and, and tracking with everything that's been going on. And I've been able to track this, not just through conversations I have with people, but through social media, specifically Twitter and watching videos posted by uh, Ukrainian accounts on Twitter. And uh, again, I say manufactured because uh, we are really in the moment, I think right now of the first full-scale social media war, first kind of conflict where we can really see it, um, the representation and the use of um, video basically um, to create a narrative for the war. And the Ukrainians are 100% winning that narrative. I mean, partly due to the fact that, um, you know, Russian, Russia is a much larger country um, that has had a sort of autocratic ruler, Putin, for 20 years or over 20 years. And so it's been cast in this, uh, you know, kind of villainous light for a bunch of different reasons. But in this specific case, um, it's an invasion with superior armed forces by a country led by a dictator. So, and, and, you know, Ukraine on the flip side of that is like the underdog that is, you know, attempting sort of um, to move towards a democratic and, you know, representative governance system and, um, 
you know, wants to have national autonomy and sovereignty and self-determination, which are all things that, you know, more or less uh, are agreed upon good around the world. And so that narrative kind of already exists on the table. And then um, social media is reinforcing all of that. Um, and Ukraine is has been quite clever, not just in a few polished commercials I've seen, but in just sort of documenting um, the bombings, documenting the capturing of Russian soldiers who they then treat uh, uh, quite kindly as POWs, and then who they also make them um, kind of confess to the camera or relay to uh, the camera and the audience that they were not aware a war was going on, that they thought they were engaging in maneuvers. Um, they forced them to address their parents back home and reveal to their parents that this is a war and not a quote unquote strategic operation as kind of Putin puts out there. Um, and so the power of video is very apparent here. And on the flip side, the sort of state um, enforced Russian propaganda um, you know, which basically prevents um, meaningful political dissent over the last, you know, basically in the 21st century in Russia against Putin's party. Um, it seems that Russia kind of has, and Putin had kind of drank the Kool-Aid on their own sort of um, propaganda about um, you know, Ukrainian Nazism and Ukrainian fascism and that the, the kind of nationalist movement in Ukraine after uh, the Maidan revolution 2014 in which they like tossed off the kind of uh, Russian puppet government for a kind of self-determining Ukrainian government. Um, in Russia, that's presented as like the rise of Nazism in Ukraine. And in um, uh, 2016, um, there was a kind of civil conflict that began um, in Eastern Ukraine, or maybe that's not the right year, but basically in the last eight years, there's been a civil conflict uh, in Eastern Ukraine following the takeover of Crimea um, in the Donbass region in the east and the next and Lugansk. And um, basically that conflict didn't organically exist in Eastern Ukraine, although of course there's always been friction between ethnic Ukrainians and ethnic Russians and the language in Ukraine being predominantly Russian for a hundred years due to the Soviet Union, blah, blah, blah. That conflict is, is by and large kind of created by Russia, full of Russian kind of soldiers and agents on in Eastern Ukraine now who are kind of pushing this civil conflict and this internal civil conflict to basically create opportunities to reinforce the Russian kind of propaganda narrative um, that, you know, Ukraine is a Nazi uh, country, a country that's being persecuting ethnic Russians and all that, which is largely not true. And, and, and sort of the lack of transparency in Russian media um, is, is also like a giveaway that they're losing the info war because if you're on kind of the, the just side of a battle, you don't need to suppress, um, you know, your own kind of populace from knowing fully what's going on or from um, expressing their dissent about it because you feel like you're on the right side of history, which clearly internally, even though they drank the Kool-Aid on their own propaganda, and they're maybe looking at, Putin's maybe looking at a kind of long form history where like 150 years from now, he's seen as some sort of great autocratic ruler, a la Peter the Great or Stalin or something. 
in the moment, they're really um, screwing up the narrative. They're losing the social media war because of the sort of repression of transparent uh, media and the sort of efficacy of Ukrainian videos. Um, and I do think it's the first um, social media war. And it is interesting to see um, how these narratives play out and are reinforced by uh, outside observers. Um, you know, Russia, for instance, is doing did this thing where basically a bunch of popular Russian TikTokers uh, presented like verbatim the exact same um, little speech about like the war in Ukraine and Russian persecution in Ukraine. And I saw uh, someone post Ben Ditto 2.0. If you're familiar with that account, check it out. He posted like a kind of one of those supercuts, you know, if they used to do like maybe five years ago to show like how the Koch brothers ran like um, local TV stations in uh, America by providing all the anchors with the same script and you just kind of supercut it together to form one like paragraph. They, uh, this clip I saw in Ben Ditto's account did that for these Russian TikTokers where they're basically finishing each other's sentences. Um, it also made me reflect a little bit on how um, shocked and like kind of, you know, impressed is the wrong word, but like I, I was really kind of obsessed with um, the propaganda campaign of ISIS in 20, I guess 2014 and 2015, and just the sophistication in which they were basically making um, DIY propaganda using drones and hidden cameras and phones to orchestrate these um, really effective and um, gruesome and terrifying um, videos um, that, you know, where they executed, um, you know, dissent and people that they consider to be infidels, where they made ISIS fighters look extremely um, heroic and cool, and the experience look like a meaningful adventure that um, also, you know, brought justice to the region where they, uh, you know, would plant a bomb and then leave a camera in waiting. And then after a moment, and a, a minute and a half of tension, you would watch, you know, quote unquote enemy um, tankers blow up and enemy trucks blow up, or you would see um, executions that were framed like um, spectacle, you know, with music and um, camera moves. And you would see drones flying over, um, you know, battlefields. Um, where the ISIS soldiers raged against other forces. And um, I was really captivated by the kind of <laughs> indie, indie propaganda filmmaking that was going on there and the way the media savvy and the audiovisual savvy of ISIS. But I don't think that that conflict, even though obviously they use social media for recruiting, um, that was not like a transparent social media conflict where the uh, hearts and minds of um, the, the world were, was kind of visibly battling, um, on social media, you know, first person in a way there, you know, this, this is very kind of the authenticity of the Ukrainian experience is, um, kind of verified by the citizen, um, participation in the social media campaign, whether or not it's orchestrated or not. Like obviously there are multiple people doing this whole um, Russian soldier confession thing. That seems to be like, you know, uh, kind of directed from the top, but people just kind of pointing the phone outside their windows and seeing helicopters and fighter jets kind of bombing um, civilian areas 
that is not clearly not like a directive from like the Zelensky government and um, clearly shows an authenticity to the experience of people having to go through war that has an immediacy that um, is different than like, you know, like a news um, station reporting on the aftermath of a bombing or something like that. Um, and I'm not saying that, that that doesn't happen in other um, areas of conflict or invasion around the world, but I'm just saying this is so um, front and center and explicit in um, you know, Western media channels and social media channels in the West. So um, yeah, I, I find that fascinating. And um, you know, I sort of intensely hope for um, a quick and bloodless conclusion to all of this. Um, and, and, you know, for it to be the beginning of the end for kind of the autocracy and total kind of dictatorship, it's not really totalitarian, but borderline, you know, the dictatorship in Russia, um, you know, and, and a kind of opening up of the Russian spirit, because people there are really, really um, oppressed um, in terms of their freedom of expression and their access to information. And uh, that is a brilliant spirit, the Russian uh, people um, in terms of their um, ability to analyze the human experience. And we want them to be free to do that um, as we want, you know, everyone around the world to be free to do that. So, uh, you know, hoping all the best for Ukraine and um, excited to watch them win the, the propaganda war, the representational war, the narrative war, the info war here, and um, hopefully the real war as well, and with as little um, damage and, and blood uh, as possible. Um, and I have a film club, uh, really briefly before we get our guest on, I do have a film club, um, and this week's film um, is, is by Sergei Loznitsa called Donbass, um, and it's about a uh, really astute analysis of the, um, kind of disinformation campaigns that Russia um, has engaged in in Eastern Ukraine and the complexity of it. And it's a really unbelievable farce and very um, sophisticated film with amazing long takes and a brilliant choreography and blocking and um, really hilarious satire and also just devastating um, vision of a area that is under a forced kind of like a manufactured conflict to become a breeding ground for propaganda and media lies. It's really fascinating. Um, and so yeah, anyone can reach out to me to uh, take a very informal look at that film, which I'm also trying to get. Um, but then I've got a release stateside, which is why, and there's no way to stream it uh, or and rent it in the US. So that's why I feel comfortable kind of briefly showing it. Um, but I'm trying to get some screenings for it as well, because it is it was one of my favorite movies for the last few years, and it is extremely relevant and extremely um, necessary right now. And, and it really kind of a height is like the type of movie that I like where you can watch it. It's unbelievably like engaging and gripping and interesting and funny and also does so many bold um, things in this in the storytelling style, Oleg. I think it's Obutu is the, the cinematographer um, and he did some amazing things in that. Um, and then I think for patrons of Director's Commentary, I will offer um, 
back page is of the PDFs. These are documents I uh, create for every movie club film and that they um, kind of are expression of my love for that film and uh, kind of reflections on important questions having to do with art and culture and self-expression and politics and propaganda that um, I think about. So this show is almost like an extension of movie club in a way. Okay, so um, our guest this week um, is a filmmaker that I've known for a long time and that I've admired his work for a long time. His name is Michael Belandich. Um, he's one of the first filmmakers I met um, when I kind of went back to New York to uh, reconnect with my family and also um, kind of see what was going on over there. There's not much of a um, it's not much of an independent film landscape in Los Angeles, which isn't shocking. Um, and there certainly wasn't in 2011, 12, when I went back to New York. But in New York, there was, there is and has been a, a real, you know, intensity and fervor of filmmaking um, always. And at that moment, um, people like Sean Price Williams, uh, who's a great cinematographer who I've been lucky to work with a few times, um, Josh Safdie, uh, Safdie Brothers, met him very passionate filmmaker, Alex Ross Perry, another super knowledgeable and passionate, interesting filmmaker, and Michael Landich, who in terms of sensibility and kind of humor, I think Mike and I share a love of campiness and goofiness and satire, uh, which pervades both of our works. And um, Mike has an extensive encyclopedic knowledge, not just of movies, but of everything kind of fringe and um, uh, anti-highbrow and kind of countercultural, but in a very 21st century sort of way, like the dingy and the dirty and the stupid and the silly and the oblivious and the cringy. I think Mike's fascination with cringe is something that um, is unparalleled. And I think he has a real love for people who um, are outsiders um, and don't know it, and they, and they think they're insiders, <laughs> um, or they strive to be insiders, but they could never, you know, you could never, because they don't understand just how weird they really are. Um, so um, we will hop on the line with Mike right now, who I believe is in um, North Carolina to show two of his films, and I think I just want to, uh, well, when he like hops on, I think I just want to, um, we just text him. Yeah, ask him about that experience and ask him about his films. And um, I recently went on a tour um, with some of my films in the last six months. Um, been lucky enough to show my first film, Zeros and Ones, um, in New York and London and Toronto. Um, and it's uh, it was really awesome 10 years later um, really 15 years after I started working on that film to really see it with audiences. It had a very limited run in 2010 when it came out and then has been kind of largely unavailable. And so to see audiences react to kind of this vision that I had for what kind of movies could be when I was 21, 22 years old, I thought oh, movies could be something really special and they could incorporate the, the computer screen and the, and the phone and all that into our storytelling and to have people react to that 15 years later is amazing. Okay, so Mike's gonna come on in and he's gonna join us. And I hope this is uh, being properly recorded. Um, Hello. Hey, Mike. How What's are you? Up, man? 
can you can, can you open up your video i'd love to see it buddy oh i thought it was on um i don't see you i just see darkness okay, hang on hang on hang on yeah yeah turn yeah. that turn that beautiful video cam on my friend let's see how the fuck how the fuck how the fuck <laughs> yeah, um, shit man this is like advanced um is it in your lower left do you see something that says start video oh stop video. Hang okay on. do it again do the start again says, do, oh God, hang on okay hanging on so i was just so you keep going and i'll just give people context so it was really nice to see people um kind of engage um in work because that's our goal right our goal is to make something for people to interact with and to communicate a vision of the world and it's awesome that you know like people are watching it like at home like on their computer or on their projector or like on their phone taking a shit or whatever but it's even better when you're in a crowd and you know especially with comedy which which mike and i both um I think are very motivated by laughs. Um, it, it always works better when you're with a group of people and you have a few brave laughers in the crowd that allows, you know, the, the I don't want to say more cowardly viewer, but I think the, the general viewer um, oftentimes, especially when it comes to satire, doesn't know how to respond to, uh, you know, kind of like a, a unique vision or like a, a new vision of like making fun of shit. Um, and so they, they need the kind of help, uh, not really the permission, but just the sort of encouragement from more brave viewers. And that's what you get um, in an audience in a movie theater that you don't really get at home, um, you know, or like in a theater of one, which um, I luckily have never had. But I, I know I've been in theaters where there's like five people watching a movie and, it, you know, it's, it's a sad thing. Um, how are we doing there, Mike? Yeah, I got a new laptop the other day. So like I've never done this. Oh, a new laptop. Congratulations. Wow. All no, these it's, it's all these terrible. all these I, screenings are you rolling in the cash? <laughs> for these screenings here in North Carolina? Yeah, is that how you got your new laptop? You're just like rolling in it. No, it was a tragedy. I like uh, I oh. woke up the other morning and there was just uh -huh. like a question mark on my laptop and like I called wow. Apple Care and they were like, this is like the worst possible thing. A question mark, right? That is like straight out of the Riddler, the new the Batman. You're just the Riddler has infected. It was your... very Riddlerish, yeah. And uh so yeah, so I think I might have lost like all my music, all my like important documents, all the fuck, man. Shit. Fuck, that's so. horrible. You don't have that shit backed up on a cloud. No. <laughs> that that is literally the plot line of zeros and ones that he gets his computer stolen and he did not back anything up. Oh, which, Dude, I'm sorry, really quick. I have to quit and reopen for the video to work. If you, I can just talk, keep talking like this. Or you want me to do that? Yeah, yeah, cool. Quit and reopen. That's fine. Okay, yeah, yeah. So for people not familiar with Zeros and Ones, that is the plot line of the film that the main character gets his computer stolen and has all his videos and photos and music and downloaded porn and professional and creative projects on there. And he didn't back it up onto a hard drive or the cloud. Now, I'm not going to call Mike out, but I do think in 2022, it's a little bit more reasonable to say like, hey, everything that lives locally, if it's like an important fucking like script or a treatment or a document or these rare movies or songs that I have, I could upload them to the cloud. So we're going to grill. We are going to grill Mike about why he didn't do that. So let's see if we got, Oh, we got it. We got video. We have 
video. So Mike, I, I, we're feeling for you. I'm sure the listeners of Director's Commentary here are feeling for you. Um, but we do want to ask you, why did you not back some of these things up to the cloud or a hard drive? That's like too much work. Right? I don't know how to do that shit. <laughs> okay. The cloud's creepy, right? The cloud is fucking creepy. And um, I have been thinking about how like I do want to become Mr. Cash from now on. I want to like take all of my money out of any sort of virtual uh, system and then just hold it in like a shoebox because I, I, I feel like we're all going to be sanctioned against. So the cloud is creepy. But I hate the concept of all your data, money, great movie ideas, uh, right. rare Belgian Smurfs, Eurodance songs all being in one uh, place. So. But, do, but are you scared that someone will grab your rare Belgian Smurf uh, songs and like be like, these are mine now? They yeah, the government's going to do that after, you know, when they uh, realize what a threat we are to uh, <laughs> you know, entertainment uh, yeah, industry. Yeah, something so powerful like these uh, bro- bro- Belgian Smurf techno remixes cannot be in the hands of someone so rebellious and <laughs> yeah. subversive like Mike Landage. Yeah, and it's cool if it all gets deleted. Fuck it. You know, it's like an underdog story. Now we got to start from scratch, you know, start we do the love, bottom again. As I was saying about uh, the situation in Ukraine, the world really relates to an underdog story. So if you weren't a big enough, like Ukraine, if you weren't a big enough underdog before, you're definitely a big underdog now, Mike. So we are all rooting for you, buddy. Yeah, we're back to the bottom, man. We're starting. We're grinding from uh, yeah. day one shit now. Well, that is, do you know, what's his name? Um, yeah, fucking blank on his name, but, you know, pretty famous um, Los Angeles based um you know, visual artist from the 20th century who ended up burning all of his, you know, the first like basically 15 years of his career, he burned it. Um, do you know who I'm talking about? It's a, he's a pretty good artist. He, he, he actually famously, he was really preoccupied with film in his career and probably his most famous works, right? He like pulled still, it's like a little bit cheesy actually. He like pulled stills from like, um, you know, famous Hollywood films and then put like a dot around them yeah 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 i know what you're talking i know exactly what you're talking about he's um, he's like an italian he's like an italian american guy but i feel like if you're doing it intentionally it's incredibly sauce you know huh? because you could be saving your hottest shit you know it's like it's better if your house just burns down randomly yeah you yeah. know if you say i'm destroying all of my stuff there's no way to prove that you don't have a secret stash of uh it's it's a gesture yeah the guy i i, I it's um john Baldessari. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, John Bell. Sorry, I, I was gonna say I remembered his name, but actually, um, I went to Google while you were saying it was super sus, and I said artist who burned work, John Bell. Sorry, um, I think there's like Coppola lost some epic script that he was working on that was only on one laptop like ten years uh, ago. Uh huh. And it sounded like dubious at the time, but now uh, I'm really I'm actually gonna buy his story now. <laughs> I think I think he is. Um, still working on that script right i did read the recent like uh i think it was in gq long form interview with him where it's like a movie called like i think it's called like babylon or like american <laughs> babylon or something and it's like the script he's been writing for like 30 years and yeah, that he, the live he, cinema book is the greatest book of all time oh yeah what is that tell me about it. he like he wrote it like uh, not that long ago it was like eight years ago or something it barely got any traction but it's all about his struggle to understand how live streaming works. Uh-huh. Because like the most simple thing, this is like after he's done The Godfather, after all these things, he doesn't understand. He was hired to shoot the like presidential announcement of um, 
just like Jerry Brown. I can't remember some Cal, some person ran for president in the eighties mm-hmm. and um, he screwed up this, what was supposed to be the most simple thing of him giving a speech. And it was all just shots of his feet, like spells everyone's name wrong, uh-huh. video glitches. So he gets this like phobia that he can't shoot live. And yeah. then he tries to do one from the heart. Right. He wants to shoot it live from a trailer. Uh-huh. He says the greatest regret of his career is Vitaria Storaro talking him out of shooting it live. So then he goes in this like wormhole that he like can't do anything. The most simple thing on earth. So that goes to sets of like soap operas, Saturday Night Live, sporting events, just observing the control, the, the control room, right? He'd go into the control room. He'd stand behind the producer. He'd kind of try to figure it out. That's yeah. that. Uh huh. So he, that book is him grappling with his like phobia of live uh, storytelling. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is that some of the greatest kind of mid-century American directors started uh, with live television, right? Like Sidney Lumet, John Frankenheimer. These were guys who like kind of, um, you know, kind of figured out filmmaking with these um, early 50s to mid 50s kind of live uh it's somewhere between theater and film, right? Because they yeah, had these Yeah, I don't think he has a theater background either. You know, so I, I like, think he had some theaterish background, not like maybe. De Palma or something. But I think there's something. His end goal was he wanted to shoot a movie that was live that didn't look like a play. That right. Was, and then he gets ethered by Woody Harrelson. I was going to say he literally he literally he's missed. like, damn, I can't believe the guy who finally achieves my life goal. Yeah, Woody Harrelson directing that movie, Lost in London. There was a fathom event with uh, um, Owen Wilson and uh, Willie Nelson. <laughs> and, his, and that whole thing, Lost in London, right? That was Woody <laughs> attempting to recreate one crazy fucking night that he actually had in London like four years earlier. And he's yeah, like, yeah, this, yeah. he's like, my night was so fucking cinematic. Like, I gotta <laughs> share this with people. Um, but you can actually see in the deep, like it, watching one from the heart, um, like the DNA of wanting it to be kind of a one take, almost like a one take thing um, with maybe some sort of like uh, poetic visual interludes. You can imagine how he would like create like some sort of like, you know, like beautifully multicolored like fabric that he would put in front of the camera, like in between like sequences or something. You no, know, and he had like an army of children following him everywhere he went. They had like a like all the making of one from the heart so sick it's like, yeah it's like- I, I saw recently like a, a kind of a, a like a weird flip side angle into that like in really inadvertently because there's this um documentary i watched about pal pressburger called like a very british affair that people can find on youtube and that i'll link for patrons but it's basically about how michael powell like in the early 80s had like an office at zoetrope where he was like every day like writing his autobiography and writing movies and he there's like a section where he like hangs out with francis Coppola walking through like the set of one from the heart and there's like there are like there's like a random teenager following Coppola around and stuff <laughs> Yeah, and it's like usually it's like grad students or high school students, but I think he had like mostly like to- like toddlers and shit like following him around, you know, <laughs> teaching them how to make you know a movie. But if I know Coppola, it's probably like one of his kids like friend groups or something. It's not yeah. like you know. And then the book the book gets really weird because then he starts going to these like regional grad programs in like mm-hmm. New Mexico or Arizona and stuff, mm-hmm. and like workshopping live. Mm. stagings for this like opus that he's trying to make and 
I'm not entirely sure if this new thing is is that the uh, megalopolis or whatever. Well, I mean, he did do the thing. I remember probably one of his worst films is the film Twixt, which is like a kind of neo-noir mystery starring Val Kilmer. That is just it's just pretty wretched in its like sort of creativity and entertainment value and its kind of, and visuals. I didn't really like it all either. But I do remember he would go on the road with that and a score by Dan Deacon. And Dan Deacon would play the score live. And I believe he kind of in a sort of, I don't know if he talks about Mike Figgis in his book at all, but like in a sort of post Mike Figgis thing, he would re-edit the movie. I don't know how extensive that was, but I think there was a kind of like decision tree thing where he would like, you know, put certain scenes in certain order while Dan Deacon kind of played a different. Did you actually of the go score. see it when that happened. I, I didn't. That's why I don't fully understand. Because I didn't either. I'm I'm like not convinced that ever even fucking happened. You think it's just like propaganda, like like it's yeah, because like I mean Ma- Mandela effect or something. I think it happened because well, but... I remember when it was going to come out. He was saying that yeah, Dan Deacon was going to score the movie live. Yeah, but like <laughs> I mean, I don't remember that ever actually happened. Well, like, I remember reading an interview with. Dan Deacon on like Pitchfork or something saying that he was at Coppola's house a lot and Coppola would show him how he was gonna like live edit like as we can go this way or this way and they were literally planning this like multi um, pronged um, you know, potential compositional strategy so that they could kind of really be in a range. But okay, well, if I do it, this scene here, like that's kind of, you should know that's the musical cue I want, blah, blah, blah. And it sounded extremely complex. I mean, no, you I know, know that, like, <laughs> I love the idea of going to like Radio City Music Hall or like the Lincoln Center sold out and like Coppola live editing this movie with Dan Deacon, freestyle and making a score yeah. on the side. But I feel like it didn't I feel like right. they hyped it up in all these interviews, but like it certainly never happened in New York. Right. That would be cool to find some documentation. You know what? I'm going to have at least our... one of our idiot friends would have gone to that. A hundred percent. I mean, all of your idiot friends and <laughs> yeah. by, by proxy, some of mine. <laughs> um, well, you know, when I first met you, I think either the first or second time I hung out, you're like, I just came back from um, like WWF, like WrestleMania or some WWE WrestleMania. And I was like, really? Like, are you into that? And you're like, yeah, I'm into that. And it made me like reconsider, you know, like uh, I feel like you have a very um, cool and admirable, truly your taste is um, your taste. And it does not make any distinctions between high and low. And probably if it had to, you would just go low all the way. Um, but th- those kind of designations don't really seem to matter to you. And I think you can find the opera and the melodrama and like the Douglas Serkian elements of wrestling, you know, mm-hmm. and, and not just like whatever. All the other stuff is good too. We like a good slap and we like a good kick. Thanks, man. It, yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, what appeals to you about wrestling? Not to get too uh, like whatever well, about it. I mean, I always liked it growing up. And honestly, though, I was actually down on it for kind of a long time. I like the Attitude Era. Mm-hmm. I like... Which is when? Late like, 90s, early 2000s. Like Triple H, Suck It, and all that stuff. Suck It, Degeneration X. Smell like, like the rock is cooking. And all ECW, all of the, like, you know, shock value stuff. And they had all these, like, like crazy writers that were coming on, like Vince Russo and stuff, who were trying to, like create plot lines where it was like god versus satan was going to be the main event <laughs> right god versus satan. Just like truly just going for pure like dramatic idiocy you know and then yeah. it was great because there was competition between like ecw wcw and wf and then 
in the early 2000s, it all became very kind of family friendly. And it's kind of at the same time that like backyard wrestling disappeared, ECW disappeared, all that stuff disappeared. Yeah. I actually didn't love that WrestleMania that I was at when we first met because it was like very expensive. I mean, it was fun. I had a great time, but I was- It wasn't raw. Yeah. But then I went to uh, AEW a couple months ago at the um, Arthur Ashe Stadium Uh in Queens. And that was like really the most fun I've had in a zillion years because it was kind of like a post-COVID thing going to like a giant arena event. And every single person who was there was all the way up completely out of their mind <laughs> and like you know sting is like wrestling <laughs> and like you know it's just not sting was, like, the musician sting sting the like uh guy that used to dress like um the crow oh <laughs> like, i see i see i see, I see. Pants, but yeah i see I, there were like undertaker i always thought was a kind of crow adjacent um yeah so wait what was that event called aew aew it's like the new uh what does that stand for Shit, man. I don't fucking know. <laughs> um, I don't know if you know about this Eugene origin story, but my filmmaking origin story is that I moved to the suburbs. I got obsessed with movies. I my family didn't have a camera. We I couldn't afford to get a camera. I met this kid at my school who was obsessed with wrestling. He organized a backyard wrestling like thing in his backyard. And he had mentioned that like, oh, he wanted, he did a camera person or something. Yeah. So I was like, I want to be your camera person. So my first kind of time handling a film, a movie, whatever, DV camera was filming back here wrestling. And then I asked him, could I borrow the camera? Like when he wasn't using it and he said, sure. And so that was like, yeah, but I enjoyed it too, because this, that's it's amazing. Just, yeah. It's just pure spectacle. And I would, I would try to offer like some sort of commentary, but I was really kind of making fun of everybody. And then he would t- tell me, please shut the fuck up, dude. No, I had the same, or I did the same thing. Those are the first times I ever really tried to film anything was doing wow. backyard wrestling. Wow. It's so funny because we all grew up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's funny because like we grew, I grew up in the city, so no one had backyards. So uh-huh. like idolized backyard wrestling. So I had like <laughs> one or two friends that lived in the suburbs. So we would drive all the way out to the suburbs to try and get a taste of the backyard wrestling. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was like this completely like, like exotic. Like asked, uh, pretending to be backyard wrestling, backyard wrestling. But did you guys yeah. do it in the city? Like were people like getting dropped on concrete or something? Not really. No, we would, I would just find, you know, you try and do it in like an apartment and it doesn't have the same effect you know, for sure. There's no freedom within the confines of those four walls. Like I said, I had like one friend who lived like an hour outside of city in a true suburban yeah. environment. And we would, uh, you know, try and like jump out the window or break yeah. some white tubes and like, do all yeah, that stuff. that's fucking awesome. I actually thought about that moment kind of in my life, kind of fondly recently, because I saw the new Jackass movie and there there's some moments in there where your mind wanders where it's not like you know like a plus jackass material and i was just like the origins of jackass is part of was like adjacent to that same kind of backyard wrestling culture you know of of just documenting spectacle and stupidity um instead of like doing something that's really kind of pretentious or just doing tons of drugs you're like okay well this could be fun yeah no it's like a good outlet you're doing like it's you know creating a character <laughs> doing some dumbass shit and it's uh yeah you know, it really was the ad- that's the attitude era to me <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? yeah so you are in north carolina right now i am i'm huh? in a um right now i'm in a garage apartment <laughs> i got some chickens outside here um and is, yeah, it, I'm, I, is this the apartment of like the person who's programming your films yeah and you're staying I mean, with uh, them and you're chapel at, hill uh-huh 
and college town right it's a huge corner corner with a k and they're like the campus like an off-campus like film society at university of uh, north carolina chapel hill and um yeah, they all live together there. all the film fans live together in this like film frat well, or something me, this guy just gave me his place and he's staying somewhere else i don't know um, uh, but what do you what is called here. kino corner their movie club or like where you're staying that's just what they're called they do events like at theaters in town and off I campus i and, see um, so yeah i don't know they, they are they flew me out here which is very sick which like never happens yeah so cool quite. and um you know, it's funny. It's like, I really, you always hear like colleges, like every time you hear about college students, it's like some horror story, some awful thing they're doing, some dumb shit they're doing. So I'm very, um, you mean like, like, like you mean like protests, you mean so I think protesting, you send your kids here. <laughs> when, when you, when you say some stupid shit, you mean like protesting some speaker or like getting angry that something doesn't feel safe is that what you mean by like yeah, this, yeah that's yeah, that's no, that's, no, that's kind of the media that's kind of like the reactionary media narrative of like colleges these days or yeah you're getting angry about like the cat of the uh appropriated like uh cultural cuisine yeah but then yeah. these guys are flying me out here to show like you know all the movies so this is so great, so so which college is at unc chapel this hill tar heels tar hills yes carolina okay. blue uh, <laughs> but is also the, the college called Duke? Is that in the same town or? No, I just learned about this on the drive over here. It's, there's the research triangle. Okay. Yeah. Tell me. Which is Durham, Raleigh and Chapel Hill. Right. Okay. So and they're nearby. It's like Durham, yeah. Raleigh's North Carolina state and then Chapel Hill's UNC. Right. right. For any sort of uh, college basketball and or college football fan, these, these things all have greater kind of, especially college basketball, these institutions have greater sort of contextual meaning. So how does it feel? Like, so what movies are you showing there? We're show- tonight we're showing Hellaware and uh, Project Space 13. Yeah. And that's like in a real kind of theater. And then tomorrow, like on campus, we're showing Happy Life and uh, Job's World. Cool. I think so- those are good pairings, right? Because in a way, Project Space 13 and Hellaware, they both star Keith Paulson or both heavily, I mean, Project Space 13, both heavily features Keith Paulson as like an artist. Now, is that the same artist from Hellaware? Is that your intention? Yeah, it is kind of. It's sort of like a sequel, but I feel like they're missing. It's like the third. I feel like there was never a part two. It's like, I feel like it's part one and part three. Um, well, you could always make a part two. You know, it doesn't have to be chronological. Yeah, yeah. You know, you could that go might back. Be the move. <laughs> you'd have to, you'd have to kind of digitally, a la the Irishman, like de-age Keith a little bit, yeah. depending on when you make <laughs> the part two. Um, and how, how does that feel? You know, I, I was just saying, I recently went to this experience where like, a bunch of people uh, rediscovered my earlier work that, you know, at the time you make these films and you, you're trying to make a commentary, at least you're trying to put in your two cents about what you see going around, going on around you, you know, cause film, I think in some ways is obviously, I think filmmakers are attempting to like put their stamp on like cinema in general and like kind of hopefully one day people will watch this, but also like you participate in your fucking culture. You want to have a discourse or some sort of interaction with the things you see around you. And by and large, my earlier films, so, you know, were kind of ignored or like, you know, they didn't make any, they didn't really start any sort of conversations, but now I feel like people are kind of interested in them. But um, yeah, how do you, how do you feel like that? Is that kind of similar to your arc or Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's cool to have like the people actually watching these earlier ones now, you know, more than when they came out. So, um, yeah, when I was driving over here, I was trying to decide if like Hellware would 
fall under the indie sleaze uh, right. <laughs> category because it really is that. Um, You're referring to the kind of uh, effort, like the vibe shift um, sort of conversation that was happening like a few weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, it's like a 2012 hipster, you know, type mm-hmm. of thing. But um, no, I think we were both kind of uh, interested in like making fun of the hipster, the kind of like oblivious, like post Williamsburg. Um, person who felt like they were inherently an artist because of like the sort of aesthetic decisions they made in representing themselves and revealed to be like a fraud and like just someone who's like totally lost. And I think Hellware did a really good job of that with Keith's character and his uh, confrontation with the, or his, you know, fetishization of um, the Hellware rappers, right? What's the name of the group? The Young Torture Killers. Yeah, the Young Killers. Torture Killers. <laughs> Which actually kind of funny is not too dissimilar from the sort of personal anecdote you just shared with us about you as like an urban teenager going into the suburbs to get a taste of backyard wrestling. No, completely. There's all I feel like I've done that a zillion times, like going to the gathering of the jugglers, going to all these things, you know, and always like not knowing at what level is this. Are you doing this because you like this? At what level is it? And it can be both multi levels, you know, it doesn't have yeah, to be. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I think. Thing. I think our role as artists is um, you have to understand something to make an informed commentary about it. Um, You have to love something to convey your interest about it to the world. And, um, and you have to be analytical and critical if you, if you, I don't know, if you want to make art, I think art has some sort of distance. Um, yeah, it's, and it's funny because yeah. it's such a niche fucking topic to do these things, to find something you like <laughs> and then make a movie making fun of the thing you like that's already small. <laughs> you know, it really can be an alienating process. Um, but don't you don't you think most kind of, so so in the, in the Hell Aware, right, the key character is kind of like a fraudulent artist. He's like a photographer who yeah. is then gets fascinated by the kind of spectacle and what he views as kind of like oblivious stupidity of like a kind of insane clown posse style, like DIY rappers in the Delaware suburbs. Um, uh, But they have a kind of pure at heart, if not a little bit naive attitude about their artistry, you know? And so it is this sort of um, conflict between like a sort of pure artist, artistic mode, even though it's like highly like appropriated and like stupid versus a cynical, and calculated kind of quote unquote art art world mode rather than artistic mode, you know? A hundred percent. And you still see, even though the movie is so specific to that moment, it is a like, you know, you see it all the time still with like SoundCloud and all the you know, people trying to do anthropological, you know, ethnographic uh, you know, studies things. and stuff. No, yeah, for sure. That that's all I was really trying to say. Yeah, that yeah, even yeah. though you're saying it's pretty niche, in fact, this is a really common thing where um, someone who thinks they have a kind of more elevated or sophisticated like attitude about people who are really um, doing something in a oblivious and or pure way will bring their perspective, but it really rings super hollow and um, exploitative, you know? And that, that, that's a world all around because everybody thinks number one, they're an artist and everyone thinks they're like a kind of researcher now. And yeah. so <laughs> people are constantly quote unquote discovering things. And then like kind of using that as like a cloudy way of showing that they're cool when in fact they might just be exploiters. Do, yeah, tell- and everything they do to offend someone else is transgressive. 
you know, anything that offends you is like, you know, a complete just, you know, affronts to, you know. I know, I know. And I, I, the, that's, I think about that all the time because, you know, it's really all about the phone, right? Like what we used to celebrate as transgressive behavior now seems exactly, like you said, like a personal affront because instead of receiving it on like Sally, Jesse, Raphael, or hearing about it from a friend, you're now getting everyone's opinions and um, kind of transgressive acts on the phone, which is also the space where we text with people we love, get emails and business and fucking take a zillion selfies and do kind of self-reflective mirror videos. And so this is a super intimate space, your phone. And then suddenly you're getting some person's opinion about, um, you know, like a, uh, police violence or you're getting somebody's opinion about Russia and Ukraine. You're like, this offends me personally because that machine, you get all of this personal intel on it. And so you've been subconsciously trained to feel like everything on there is 100% intended for you when in fact, it has nothing to do with you. So fucking just relax. 100%. And yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've already talked about it and don't even want to talk about it. But the Russia thing is just next level where it's just overnight people being forced to have opinions, you know, yeah. get it. And I mean, I, them I, out and I, share them at everyone. I and, personally do have an opinion just because I'm fucking from Ukraine. And, in, and, yeah, yeah. The amount of, you know what you're talking about here, but it's like everyone overnight had to learn all this stuff. And it's like acting it, like they're... You know, special yeah ge ge geopolitical foreign policy specialist yeah. <laughs> i mean i mean one thing that i never agree uh, like like think is correct and uh, which i wouldn't really ever do is like and i can understand you know people in ukraine saying like hey russian people need to go out into the street and fucking protest i mean that's a fucking country where you get put in prison for protesting where your your family could lose their jobs where your family members could be put in i mean it's a fucking autocratic dictatorship yeah. um, but even in america I do feel like the phrase like silence is violence is violence to me that's violence like forcing people to kind of express their opinion um, or kind of you know basically become like a specialist in something or say this is unjust or I, I side with this um, in an environment where basically one wrong move and your expression becomes uh, a transgression and your transgression becomes uh, something you'll never be able to live down. Um, that yeah. seems that sort of forced, a, I, I would never think that I have the moral authority to enforce other people's participation in like um, public discourse or in you know moral behavior. And I think that's kind of a sickness and there's something immoral about people thinking they have the moral authority to force others to, um, you know, behave a certain way or express a certain opinion that is hetero, you know, that is um, orthodox, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it, it's, it's super fallacious and it comes explicitly from our um, kind of dependence on social media as a, a kind of battleground for morality or as a model. a model. The model for morality created by social media is sharing. So if you do not share and if you do not express, then you are immoral for non-participation. But like that is evil. Hundred percent. Yeah, completely agree. <laughs> uh, um, so, th so that's super cool. And then your first movie, Happy Life. Can you just tell me a little bit about? I, I'm really fascinated by first films. So, can you just tell me about like the fast and uh, the uh, origin of that film? Yeah, Happy Life. It's a, like a um, super low budget comedy about a um, kind of middle aged guy in the East Village who opens an all trance and happy hardcore record store. And it's going out of business 
and it's like an empire records type thing he's going yeah. but instead of having a community of people there he's like this like fucking over like kind of middle-aged loser who's like into trance and hardcore music kind of a little bit past a little bit past its heyday and a little bit past like the heyday of record store i mean it was yeah. kind of part of the record store revival but he's not like in the indie rock pitchfork fashion so he's not he can't ride it um when did you make that movie 2000 and yeah, I think it's like 2000, it came like 2009 or something, 2010. That's, like that's when you shot it. Yeah, yeah. And then something like that. Yeah, it came. Um, and yeah, so he like never gets the memo, you know, he's kind of like Asperger's and like just keeps doubling down on this, you know, keeping the store open and finds this old sort of burnout crackhead. Well, well before you continue in the plot summary, okay. which well, I encourage <laughs> everyone to hunt the movie down, is that movie available? Like, uh, I think right now the only place you can see it is on the deeper into movies. Platform. Okay, cool. Okay, so they can um, check that out. But I guess I'm wondering what inspired you to tell oh, yeah. that story. I mean, like, I was working what... at Kim's uh, video on yeah. St. Mark's. Yeah. And, you know, the store was, it was inevitable that it was going to close, you know, within the year probably. Because you know? because just the idea of like, okay, there's Netflix, there's sh- streaming was happening. And it's like, maybe streaming was about to just get started. And it's like, no one was going to video stores. Is that right? Is that why? Yeah, absolutely. And like real estate sort of, and like, yeah. It was sort of like, you know, you could see the, the finish line here, you know, and it was sort of the end of like a lot of these record stores and places that we all kind of loved. And um, yeah, so just like a comedy, you know, then I worked for a while, Able for our blah, blah, blah. But then, yeah, I made this movie, but it was basically about that, you know, so the videos, it really is, more about the video store culture even though it takes place in a record store and um yeah just kind of a comedy about that but now it's funny to watch because you know all the places we shot in yeah closed like we shot in this weird world music place called tribal sounds with a z with like you know didgeridoos and yeah other music and all these places and yeah, like, that's one of the great things about shooting or one of the things i like about watching movies in new york is like you can make the worst piece of shit movie of all time and at least you can like, be like, oh, I remember that. I remember that store. Like, oh, what street is this? What? And hey, how, for the record, the pleasure of watching it now is just seeing the different landscape and recognizing d- different things and what that means in relation to the story and the idea of it. And you know, all so that. you're a, you're a bit of an ethnographic filmmaker yourself. <laughs> it's completely yeah. <laughs> and ar- archaeologist yourself. Um, I, for the record, I will say that I'm a huge fan of Happy Life. Might still be my favorite movie of yours. And um, it is not an absolute piece of dog shit. Not that you were implying <laughs> that it is, but I think what you were referring to is the fact that you have seen many movies because I think you are, are really a, a, a real researcher and excavator of the um, under underappreciated and underseen. Well, the um, punchline, and then the punchline of the movie is there's a million record stores now yeah. in New York. There's a zillion of them like, yeah. that are great. And people like the movie now, <laughs> you know, and it really think, there feels like living here in this neighborhood for that amount of time, there is a full circle sort of quality where it's like, right. everyone lives downtown again. There's a million records. Stores. Yes, yes, people yes, yes. Like, <laughs> yeah, now like the stuff. And it's just part of getting older, you know, is like watching that cycle because you've um, lived around there since forever. Yeah. And, and you um, should, it, now the this- other punchline is then I talking about the um anthropology then it's like 
I didn't even like the music when I made it. And now I'm like, Into it. All, I spent all the COVID, <laughs> you know, listening to like Yara Dance and Happy Hardcore. And That's really, really funny. So you didn't like that music. I, I always am. I'm pretty fascinated in like my. I mean, uh, I, like, I liked it, but I wasn't like, a, it wasn't like one of the things I was actively listening to yeah. obsessed about yeah. but why did you choose that just because you thought it was such a funny kind of like thing that had run its course and this guy was kind of stuck in like a nostalgic path i mean right now you're probably the age of your protagonist in that movie right yeah totally probably older even <laughs> you know? I mean, it's always like that like you always think the person older than you is a hundred thousand a know, loser yeah and a hundred thousand fucking years old and i'm like you know uh and now you're a hundred thousand and two yeah and i'm still thinking like <laughs> oh well you know larry clark is saying skateboarding at 47 whatever the fuck i'm young as fuck i don't give a fuck <laughs> yeah. you know it's like yeah. um yeah larry clark he's like 74 yeah and he's balling out <laughs> yeah he's balling I mean, maybe not right at this moment but at least hey he could be ball. hey don't don't um you know i wouldn't speculate on what he is or isn't doing right now he could be balling right now you unless know, you know something fun. unless you just got off the phone with him I haven't. So yeah, you could, that's a very good point. <laughs> um, and for anyone listening who's a movie fan or just trying to break in, how did you end up, because when you made Happy Life, you, I guess, Abel Ferrara, executive produced that and you worked with him for a long time. How did you end up working for him? It was kind of just, uh, I knew someone who was working at whose parent was producing the Chelsea Hotel, Chelsea oh, on the Rocks. And I got a job. Little, like, little bit of nepotism. Huh? A little bit, yeah. And then, but it really, but no one could finish that job with nepotism. It was the most like, <laughs> right, right. You know, experience you could ever get. So, but it was only a crew of a few people. It was like a six person crew or something. Uh-huh. So I got really thrown into the um, kind of most extreme situation of running around the Chelsea Hotel with Abel and his crew of people. And it was like the most fun time ever. So we just, kept working and it didn't really stop you know so then we yeah. did Mulberry Street after that and while I was producing that movie for him is when, while we made Happy Life also wow yeah so and um Mulberry Street is a doc right yeah yeah so when you weren't guys weren't shooting the doc you and sh- so was Sean shooting that or how, how did you get connected with Sean I knew Sean from Kim's, from Kim's. Kim's. yeah he yeah. was worked there before me but he was always kind of the like the man at the video store, you know. Okay, so and, so um, you heard stories about him before you met yeah, him? Or I no? mean, I knew him from going to the, yeah, yeah, hanging out there. And then, uh, yeah, we were just going to movies all the time, hanging out at the video store. We were, all, we were friends pretty early. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I did But the first time we worked was I acted in something that he was working on that's yeah. uh, an unseen uh, project. And then um, and I guess Happy Life was the first time, yeah. We, you know, a lot of people, they start off making shorts. Now, I never understood that because I was like, well, I think like, you know, some people, they take a few days to make a short or like a week or something. And I was like, why would I ever spend money on something that you like, can't even really see um, or like you can't ever sell or that, you know, isn't like a full story. Um, and so- It's harder. Yeah, it's like weirdly harder or something. Like, like harder to get people behind years. behind a short, I think. No, you're you're one of the only people that's made a watchable web series. You know, thank you. Like, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, there's a reason there's not many good ones, and it's a great way, a great web series, <laughs> and nice. ones. But like, there's a reason there aren't that there isn't a canon of these things is because it's incredibly hard to tell a story in a short episodic. Yeah. Uh, in like five minute increments and stuff. And um, 
making shorts is really fucking hard to make a good one. Yeah, people tell me, oh, I'm going to make a short, I'm going to make a short. And I always say to them like, hey, you should make a movie. Just make a feature, just go. Whatever, however hard it's you think it's to make a short, making a feature is only like 30% harder. Yeah, I think there's a weird bar that people um, create, you, you know, between the two and it doesn't necessarily have to be there. And that was... um. Yeah, I introduced She Hate Me the other day. Right, I, I'm a big fan of that. It was pretty fun, but it was saying when I worked for Spike Lee on She Hate Me, he was saying the whole point of working on it was to see that making a feature-length movie is exactly the same as making a shorter one and to just destigmatize, you know, what it is to work on a project like that. And that it's really what uh why? Because the production um logistics and reality of that film were really fast and really cheap is that why no he's just saying all the things you get mad about all the drama all the things are exactly the same as a short film uh-huh making a full-length film you know what i'm saying so and just to say that if you can do this one thing you can easily do the other thing i 100 i 100 agree and i encourage unless they're trying to make a marvel movie and using the short yeah. film as their calling card you have something <laughs> you want to say Unless it has to be short, I think it's better to make it as a feature because you have more impact uh, on the viewer, I think, um, you know. Um, yeah, and now it's still the only time I turn my phone off now is going to, you know, when I take a shower or when I go to a movie now, you know. I so. think that's so, on the shower is literally where I come up with 80% of my ideas and thinking. And it's it's really weird. And like, why don't I just throw my phone away and I can think like, you know, 40% of the time. No, I was gonna. I couldn't figure out how to use the shower at this place I'm staying at, and it's <laughs> fucked up. I was like, "Shit, I gotta come up with what I'm gonna say tonight." I'm like, you know, gotta like turn the phone off and get in this fucking shower. I couldn't even figure this fucking thing out, so I might, uh, I might well, bomb. We'll see. Well, no, you know, now's the time. Call up the guy, Mister Kino Corner, and be like, uh, "How do you shower here?" I do a Facetime with him. Yeah, we'll see. I looked at the Instagram last night for the theater, uh-huh. and. There was one like for the event. <laughs> I literally, I literally, me, oh, fuck. oh, that is, <laughs> so, fuck, well, um, so, so it might just, so it might just be me, uh, tonight anyway. So. Send me a photo from the theater. I'll, I'll post it in the, the Patreon area. Nice. <laughs> um, well, thanks, Mike. Thanks for talking to me on the, the first episode here of director's commentary. Um, can't think of a better person to kick it off with. And yeah, I, I, I wish you a really fun uh, weekend of screenings and congratulations. And I hope we get a chance to hang out soon and uh, just have a drink and catch a movie or something. Sounds great. Sick, man. All right. Okay. All right. I'll Bye. See you soon. All right. Peace. Nice. Okay. So, yeah, that was cool. Thanks to uh, Mike Landich. And we do wish him all the best that his screenings go well this weekend and that he is not the only person there. <laughs> um, but that is, like I was saying, I think before Mike came on, you know, it can be the plight of a, a filmmaker who is working um, in their own kind of modality and like telling their own stories about the backing of like, you know, any sort of major uh, promotional machine or uh, pre-existing IP that um you know you have to uh be happy with the thing you're making because maybe no one will care for a while and hopefully people come around to it um which i think people really will come around to mike's movies and i always said like amongst the, the new york friend group i'm like mike is the one who has the most potential to make like a huge hit 
a la like jackass or like you know not like that his vibe is napoleon dynamite or anything but you could imagine mike just kind of ending up making like a movie that kind of um goes big because he, he is really fun and freaky and um accessible a filmmaker in his sensibilities um and thanks for having me on okay so um i was gonna do like some sort of kind of like 2021 movie recap but i think um i may save that um for the kind of uh later episode i think what we're gonna do is um gonna post this check out the patreon for director's commentary um and next week we'll probably do another episode kind of like this um just kind of discursive with an interview and then based off of these first two episodes we will do a raffle with patrons of the show and um we will uh discuss uh whatever whoever the winner is and we'll talk about it more but for now i just want to say uh thanks for listening this has been episode one of director's commentary i hope you enjoyed it and um talk to you next time all right bye that's fucking filmmaking right there <laughs>